Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. And I'm here with my very good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Not so good, Mark. This this age of misinformation has now come in to our board game industry. I was on Twitter today, and they're, they're starting to lie about winning certain games. I don't know, this this trend <laughs> where people have to you know, brag about winning games when it's quite obvious they're lying because they cannot do so. Well, more on that later, but I have to say that the fake news train has arrived in hobby board gaming a long time ago. Have you seen the time estimates for many of these things we I play? Know, right? The player counts they say that these games can be played at? We've been dealing with systematic misinformation for generations here in this hobby. So true. So we are going to completely change up because it's a new year, a new show. We're going to try something different. If you don't like it, please let us know. This is something new for us as well. So instead of what we normally do, we're first going to talk about the games we played this week, then the news and why it doesn't matter, and then our feature game this week, which is... The G.I. Joe deck building game. Wait, wait, we're going to talk about board games? We are. I thought that this I, was The Bachelorette. I, I was promised a chance at love and a daily meal voucher. I know the big bouquet of roses I sent earlier today might have given you the wrong impression. I apologize. Oh. Okay, well, what'd you play this week? Mark, you and I got to play a game together. We played Puzzle Strike 2. This is designed by David Serlin and put out by Serlin Games. David Serlin of Serlin Games. And uh, they had a they had Puzzle Strike out quite a while ago, where you it was a bag building type game. Well, it was a straight deck builder with a bag. True, true. Instead of cards, you were pulling out uh, discs. Discs that were designed by a fan reskin of Dominion, which David Serlin ripped off wholesale. Whoa! All right, 
This is not an unfounded allegation. This is literally what happened. This is literally what happened. I should note. I should absolutely note. And this is not a joke for editorial disclosure. I was actually listening to one of my recent editorials on the Patreon exclusive episodes. By the way, this is multiple five year for Patreon. And I was saying that, you know, prejudice can go both ways. You know, very often content creators, I see them palling around with game designers. And I think I could never do that. I could never become friendly with a game designer and then talk about their games objectively. And I said, this cuts both ways. If I ever decided that a game designer was a jerk, I don't know if I'd be able to review their games objectively. Not that that would ever happen. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. We're going to be talking about David Serlin this week. So David Serlin is a divisive figure, to say the least. Uh, let me just put it this way. He was considered too abrasive for the fighting game community 20 years ago. Wow. That's a bit of a barometer. I've never met the man personally. I've got nothing against him personally. I just know him by reputation and from some anecdotes that I've been told in confidence. So take that as my disclosure for talking about Serlin games. All right. So they have not strayed too far from deck building. We're still doing some deck building, but we're also doing some gem manipulation. And that part was very interesting. There was a lot of good things going on here. There's this interesting gem tally as you as you fired gems across the board. There was puzzling out how you were going to manipulate these gems. There was the fact that you got personal decks at the beginning that sort of, you know, put you in a certain direction. And then there was the giant scepter. The then magical princess scepter, the yes. The magical princess. And then they did something terribly wrong. This is a very a game very much like King of Tokyo, where you decide if you're going to be the big guy in the middle, taking damage from everyone else and then when you put out damage you give it to everyone else but then it does this thing where you can't plan ahead where at the very beginning of your turn you're taking on some gems on the top of your thing it's like it's it's your you funnel off the top of your gem stack and in order to plan on what you're doing you have to know what's going to be at the top and if you have to wait till your turn begins to find out because you have to do this anti thing and a random card is going to be turned up and you're going to get some gens at the top, so you're just sitting there. There's no sense doing anything until it's your turn. That is terrible. So this, very much like the first puzzle strike, is a board-slash-card game implementation of Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, on which David Serlin was a design lead. And as you say, it's very much managing the stack of gems in a somewhat Tetra style. Let me start with what I really liked. I thoroughly enjoyed the risk-reward mechanism, because while your gem stack is really big and you're courting disaster thereby because the goal of the game is not to bust, you become very powerful and are capable of dealing out large quantities of damage. You're also capable of soaking a large quantity of damage. The way it deals with the Magical Princess Scepter, and by the way, I am the prettiest of princesses, is... I think a major innovation because yes, it is somewhat similar to King of Tokyo, but the difference is that after each player's turn that is not yours, if you have the scepter, you can decide whether you wish to power up and start charging these incredibly powerful abilities, which you will charge very rapidly if you hold on to the, 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 the scepter, or you can hand the scepter to whoever just had their turn. And it really is this quite interesting dilemma of getting hit time after time after time and thinking, can I make it to my next turn? Because if I can make it to my next turn, then I get to unload this world of pain on all my opponents. And that dovetails with the risk-reward elements very, very nicely. Those parts of the game, I thought, were really, really well done. And for what it's worth, Puzzle Strike 2 did it in a way that I hadn't really seen it done elsewhere recently. Then there was everything else. I agree with you. You can't really plan in advance for your turn. And the downtime is brutal. 
Now, granted, we were playing on Tabletop Simulator, but I think all told in person it would shake out to be the same because Tabletop Simulator automated a fair number of things. You just click on a button and that automatically causes a gem of the appropriate color to siphle down into your stack rather than having to pick out the appropriate kind of gem and then physically manipulate it. But swapping gems, which is what you spend a lot of your turns doing, it's like, okay, well, this green one and this pink one are adjacent and they're going to swap spaces. No, now they're on top of each other. Now no, no on- now you got to, oh, wait, no, now, oh, it's gone. No, wait, I got to summon another one. Oh, yeah. Okay. But I've manipulated tokens on unidirectional tracks like this in real life, and some of these problems occur too. You have to keep them all lined up, and because it matters what level they're at, and so they can't be off-center, and so I'm not saying it would be as painful with the swap, but certain other things would be as painful, and you just sit there watching other people take their turns. And to be frank, other people's turns aren't interesting. People have sold Puzzle Strike 2, both in general and sometimes in communication to us, as, oh, you get to see people crawl out of nearly impossible situations. That's absolutely true. They started their turn with this number 30 on top of their board, and by the end of the turn, that 30 is gone. Now, the turn took five minutes, and all they were doing was just manipulating gems and swapping them around and then telling us to put numbers on the top of our tracks. Nothing interesting happens. I honestly felt... While playing Puzzle Strike 2, it was a throwback to, like, the first six months of Dominion being released and watching people play Village, 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 Market, Village, Village, Market, and just sitting there shuffling cards and nothing was happening. These endless turns that you couldn't pre-plan because you had to see what came off the top of your deck, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That is honestly the vibe that I got. And so Puzzle Strike 2 can't even capitalize on its clever bits, and I'm not inclined to go back. I agree. Even not even for the giant scepter. The giant scepter looks boss. I mean, people are complaining about it online. Oh, it's contributing a lot to the cost. It lights up apparently in real life, and I think that's awesome. You need something to fiddle with while you're waiting for your turn. <laughs> Absolutely, but at least it dovetails with the clever bits mechanically. And if you're going to be blowing a bunch of money on a Kickstarter project, at least you can say, "Hey, it's got this toy in it." I honestly think that's the best part of the game. I wonder if it's like a a gimmick, too. You can sort of pretend you bought it as as a toy present for your children. You say, look, dear, I bought (laughs) our daughter the Pretty Princess Scepter toy. And then... Let's be progressive. Let's let's buy the Pretty Princess toy for for our sons. Sure. Either or. So that was Puzzle Strike 2 by David Serlin and Serlin Games. By the time you hear this, it's probably off Kickstarter, but you might be able to late pledge. Take a look. Of course you will. (laughs) You have money and they want it, they'll take it. It is available on Tabletop Simulator, and it is available on Tabletopia in official mod. You also got to play with me the Crew Mission Deep Sea. I am a little bit late to this party. I knew that it was going to be, at the very least, solid and great, because the crew is solid and great, and I knew that the sequel didn't really fundamentally undermine the qualities that made the crew wonderful, which is to say, really solid, cooperative, trick-taking mechanisms. I didn't quite understand coming into it how different the mission structure was and how flexible it is. And I really appreciate how flexible it is. You can end up with any number of weird combinations of very specific things that you need to do. Like, you need to win the pink two on the last trick of the game handed out to one player. Or you need to win three nines, or you need to win the first trick and the last trick, or you need to not win the first four tricks. A dizzying array of unique and interesting missions to accomplish. Now, this is both the strength and the weakness. The strength is that every mission, regardless of what it actually says in the mission book, we never looked at the mission book, we didn't have to, you just pick a difficulty level and you're off to the races, gets to feel radically different from the next. 
I love the crew, but generally speaking, you don't end up with combinations of missions that are especially thrilling, except for, oh, that's a lot of missions of the same color that came out. It's going to get somewhat difficult. Now, the downside of this is very quickly, we only played a a small number of hands, three or four. We immediately saw combinations that very clearly depended a lot on having the right distribution of cards across different hands. And if you care about balance in cooperative games, I suspect this is going to rub you the wrong way. It doesn't rub me the wrong way, because I've said repeatedly, when it comes to co-op games, I don't really care about the balance, to be frank. A bizarre cluster of missions comes up that's borderline unwinnable by virtue of strange combinatorics. Eh, who cares? You'll deal another hand in a few minutes anyway. That's all right. It's co-op. It's not like somebody gets to feel like they won or lost based on the game handing it to them. It's a cooperative experience. You're all in it together. But I can completely understand that for people who care about game balance, you probably want to stick to the base game of the crew. As it is, I think the variety is really quite cool. This is going to be a heavy solo co-op episode, I can tell you that. On that note, Uprising. We just keep going back to it. This time we introduced it to Louie. And we, uh, Dewey and I emphasize the terrain bonuses you get because there's all sorts of different terrains and we wanted to see how much of a difference it make. And oh my goodness, does it make it so much easier. That coupled with uh, a lot of lucky draws and some really good dice rolls on our part. Not that, you know, we had any influence on the dice, just we were ridiculously lucky, made this game a lot easier and Louis very much enjoyed it and we're going to get back to it as soon as it comes back to Kingston. Got to play Reign of Witches by Amabel Holland at Hollenspiel. This was actually the freebie that Hollenspiel gave to people during its 2020 sale if you bought two or more games. It's a small deck of cards. It is a minimalistic version of a PAX game. It was cheekily referred to by Amabel Holland in the designer's notes as PAX Adams, uh, but she noted very uh, neatly that that might cause confusion with the movie, so uh, best not to do that. So instead, it's called Reign of Witches, which was some weird offhand comment by Thomas Jefferson, because Thomas Jefferson was known for nothing, if not weird offhand comments. So Reign of Witches slash Pax Adams is nominally about the, the election battle between the Hamiltonians and the Adams faction of the Federalists during the fourth presidential election in the United States of America, the one that was ultimately won by Jefferson. And this is actually something I'm going to stress. This is, again, I talked about the field of the cloth of gold last time in the context of Amabel Holland. And for me, Amabel Holland's designs tend to be hit or miss because she very clearly has a strong historical or gamey perspective that she wants to reinforce through the design. Sometimes I feel that's artificial and leads to the design being too constrained. Sometimes I think it dovetails very neatly with how the game works mechanically, and it leads to a very interesting perspective. And I think that Reign of Witches is very solidly in the latter camp, because she stresses that the most likely scenario at the end of a game of the Reign of Witches is that both players lose and Thomas Jefferson wins the election. If you know that going in and the scoring is very simple and very transparent, it leads to an interesting kind of challenge and it represents history very well because the sniping between John Adams and Alexander Hamilton is why Thomas Jefferson arguably won that election in the first place. And given that many of your most powerful effects serve primarily or almost exclusively just to hobble the opponent, 
Neither of you are getting up on Jefferson in that context, but the temptation is always there. It's actually quite delicious from a historical perspective. I don't know a whole heck of a lot about that period of time. I mean, everyone knows Hamilton, but I nonetheless thought that it evoked a certain element of the vindictiveness and the, well, if you can't win, we might as well throw it to this other guy we both hate. That was (laughs) very, very neat. Anyway, gameplay-wise, it is a straight, packs game more or less except simplified as I say you only have one action on your turn you can buy a card you can play a card or you can activate a card and every card has special rules and special abilities but mostly you just want a higher score so at least the victory conditions as I say are much more transparent than some of your other packs games I thoroughly enjoyed it I thought for the minimalism of components and the stripped down rule set, you still get a lot of cut and thrust, a lot of interesting gambits. Do I take that card because my opponent really needs it? Or do I take this other card that's better for me? How do I manage my money? When's the right time to move? How do I protect against this assault? How long is the game going to last? Etc. Etc. All from a very, very minimalist and very quick game. I understand why it went out of print very quickly. Again, it was a freebie. They'd never sold it, and they said they were never going to sell it. But fan demand and the fact that it was selling on the secondary market for in excess of $50, which outraged Emma Holland, well, she gave them away for free as a promo. Generally speaking, artists, when they see their free promos reselling on the secondary market for large sums of money, they get upset and seek a way to get it into the hands of fans who are willing to pay these exorbitant prices. And so she repackaged Reign of Witches and the Toledo War, again, two freebies, as a standalone product that you can then buy from the Hollenspiel website. It's really neat. I thoroughly enjoy it. I wish that Amabel Holland would do more designs in the sort of PAX-E tableau builder type of sphere, because I really liked how the victory conditions worked and, and again, intersected with the historical situation. I, I mean, I should mention that a lot of the historical background is less about the election and also about the quasi-war. I'm less interested in the quasi-war, but uh, what can I say? Reminds me of an old computer game that you were like a pirate. Instead of doing the traditional sword fighting, you would exchange like insults and whoever had the nastiest or best insults would win the battle. And that, yeah, Monkey Island. Yeah. Yeah. That would make a very interesting game mechanic, I think, if someone like incorporated that into a game. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, (laughs) the war of words between the various, and of course, it's also worth noting again that Amabel Holland's designer's notes are some of the best in the business and some of the card notes are, are very, very funny. Uh, one of the funny things is that the actual other competitor in the presidential election, Thomas Pinckney, the guy that Hamilton supported, is barely represented at all in the game. And she happens to note that there is no possibility of Aaron Burr winning at all in the context of the game, which is also great. Any unnecessary slight going out of your way to insult Aaron Burr just makes me happy. It's just funny. So that was Reign of Witches by Amabel Holland. I'm very much looking forward to the freebie for this year's Hollandaise sale, which is a similar type of game about the Reign of Terror. So that's a subject that I'm very, very interested in. And I'm very much looking forward to trying that too. I know the Hollandaise sales sounds kind of messy. Do they like ship it in like a bucket of Hollandaise sauce and you sort of like <laughs> fish around inside for your freebie? I thought you were going to make a joke about how vicious and nasty and blood-soaked a lot of these exchanges were. <laughs> they, they know how to make a good joke down at uh, Hollandspiel. We went back to Botoku. We we streamed it last Saturday. We stream every Saturday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. And we're going to be doing a lot of streaming more lately. A lot of streaming more lately. A lot of streaming more lately. Well, that's that's good English right there. That's um, the one, yeah. Uh, because we have a new rig down here in, in, the, in the studio where it's just one click and we're streaming. So we'll be more inclined to do so. So check out our Twitch 
station for that. It is very important that you know whether you're logged into the OnlyFans or to Twitch before you do that locker. I will make sure I have the the correct markers on. So, Botoku, published by Devier Games and designed by German P. Milan. And I'm enjoying it more and more every time. This is my my thing. Worker placement. Dice. You know, you can you improve them. You make them uh, better because they'll give you better actions. And when you cross the river, they downgrade. And if they're a six, then they go all the way to a three mark. It's very nasty. Don't do that. <laughs> you look so sad. What's it, wrong it with threes? It's very sad. Threes are nice. Yeah, but sixes are so much nicer. Are they... <laughs> But they're diagonal, the three pips it's on the diagonal. True, it's very aesthetic. It's well, uh, just threes it, are underappreciated. It, it's just the fact that it leads to yet another decision space. Like you have the sixes there, you did the great action. Now, do you cross the river and, and reduce them down to a three, or do you just leave them where they are and use them as sixes again next round? These are the choices that you have in Botoku. Uh, you get these stones at the beginning of the game, and they sort of direct you in certain ways. And I love how every time I've played it, I've done something completely different each time. Art is amazing. Everything about this game, I'm enjoying it every time. It sounds very Heracleitean. The six never steps in the same river twice, because then it, after it's the six, it's the three. That's right. It becomes another spirit. I'm very much looking forward to Botoku. I will be trying it soon. I went back to Rift Force. Last week, I commented that I was very, very disappointed with Radlands, and it was not what I was looking for in a two-player card game. And Rift Force is a game that I have not played enough from 2021. It's by Carlo Bortoloni. In a game of Rift Force, the first thing that both players do is they draft their asymmetric factions, because Rift Force is very, very much about exploiting combos. And one of the things that I didn't really enjoy about Redlands, as I said, was you're basically trying to navigate a random influx of bespoke special abilities and trying to make a go of it. Now, in some contexts, I quite like that setup. But given the parsimony of card draws and given the rather narrow universe of possible effects, I don't really think that it manifested into the kind of duel that I appreciate. But Rift Force, on the other hand, has provided consistently enjoyable sessions for me in terms of managing the tempo, hand management, which is always something that I enjoy, and really leveraging positional advantages. And as a consequence, I, it was like much more like the cut and thrust of an actual duel with another opponent. And you get to have lovely little reversals and exploitation of special abilities in the right way and knowing when to draw, knowing when to pull back. It, it, it really is very well done. A number of people have compared it to the feeling of a two-player Knizia card game. And while I don't think it feels like his patented you wish you could pass but you can't element that you often have in a Knizia card game, it nonetheless feels Knizia-like in terms of a lot of its hand management and in terms of some of the trade-offs that you have to do. And that's high praise. So Rift Force is going to be getting... An expansion sometime this year. It's going to introduce new factions and a multiplayer mode and, of course, a solo mode because it's 2022 and everything has to have a solo mode. And if it doesn't, it's obviously unplayable. Zero out of ten. Why are you even asking for money? I joke, but who knows? It might be okay. And I am looking forward to more sessions of Rift Force. I will probably try to introduce Walker to Rift Force as it is very, very good. And I am a big fan of the game. That Again, that is Rift Force by Carlo Bortoloni. Published by One More Time Games and Capstone Games. Dewey and I return to Orleans Invasion, the cooperative edition. This is designed by Inca and Marcus Brand, and also the original designer of Orleans, Reiner Stockhausen. And uh, we have the I have the, I have the Tasty Minstrel version, but now Capstone has been putting out the new edition Orleans, so it's a lot easier to pick up. Still loving the the cooperative version. Now, 
we're going to be talking about a bunch of other cooperative things. And I, I always have to remind people like when they start to get beaten down by a co-op version or a solo version that they have limited resources to their employee to do this, right? They have uh, deck milling, dice rolling, random cards, wacky events. These are the mechanisms that are often employed in these types of games. This is why I really enjoy uh, Orleans Invasion because it the only one it uses is an event uh, deck per se. You know, you're flipping one every turn. But in this case, some of them actually help you out. They're not all detrimental and they're just, you're just trying to do all the tasks that you need to do before it runs out. And so there's not a whole bunch of swinginess. There's just get your puzzle working correctly as quickly as possible. Going to go back to it again because I just really enjoyed playing it. And that is Orleans Cooperative Invasion. Finally for me, I would like to quote a great poet. A great poet and performer of the 20th century, Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. And he said, I am the champion. I am the champion. No time for losers. Because I am the champion. At least I think it was Connor, Connor McLeod. It could have been Duncan McLeod. Of the world? Of the world. I have one regicide, Walker. Oh, Josephus and I won regicide. I should have known that Josephus would get it into his into his mind that we had to keep bashing our heads against the stone wall that is regicide until our bloodied skulls emerged on the other side. Because let's just say that he sometimes gets a fixation on defeating a certain co-op challenge and we'll keep going at it. He is the person with whom I first got a 25 in Hanabi. This is largely because we have a weird kind of mind meld and we have the same perverse thoughts. He is also the person who insisted that we keep playing against Plagrat in Sentinels of the Multiverse until we finally beat Plagrat. I will note, though, that we didn't so much beat Plagrat as we marched Tempest out in front of Plagrat, watched him get nibbled on by Plagrat, and then dead Tempest allowed us to win because Tempest, when dead in Sentinels of the Multiverse, allows you to obtain immunity from a certain elemental damage type for the round, and Plagrat only does one type of damage, and so at that point it was a cakewalk. Anyway, setting all that aside, we won Regicide, Walker. Congratulations, Mark. A number of people just parenthetically inquired after our Best of 2021 episode why we didn't mention Regicide. We didn't mention Regicide because it was published in 2020. At least that's what's listed on the database at BoardGameGeek. That is the criterion we employ for eligibility. Is it arbitrary? 100%. Do I rest on arbitrary distinctions so as to avoid difficult or weird or fuzzy distinctions and so as to be consistent? 100%. Would it have factored into our top 10 of, of the year had it been published that year? Absolutely. And it was absolutely an oversight that we didn't try it in its first year of publication. If we had, it absolutely would have ranked, possibly even been game of the year. Who knows? But none of that matters right now, Walker. Because I beat Regicide. I beat Regicide. Now, I, sh I guess I shouldn't say beat. This isn't like the, the RPG that you beat <laughs> and then set aside. I will be playing Regicide some more if for no other reason than I don't have to be subjected to the snarky comments from Huey and the rest of the chattering internet. First it was, oh, you haven't won Regicide? How cute. Now it's, oh, you've only won once? I remember my first win. Anyway, all of you can still shut up about it. I beat Regicide. Hooray. If you haven't tried Regicide, what is stopping you? Everywhere I go, I see decks of Regicide for sale. At the gas station, at the dollar store, at the grocery store. They sell decks of Regicide everywhere. Now, they don't have the adorable art. And you absolutely should try it with the adorable art if possible. I think my favorite is Peanut. Peanut is the two of diamonds. Peanut has been with me through many of my losses because, you know, you're there at the Queens of the Kings and all you've got is Peanut. Peanut's going to march out and do Peanut's best. He does. I was about to say, Peanut does his best. He, he you know, he, he yep. does it 100%. He, he gives goes. it his all. He, yeah. 
but Peanut's not going to get it done, let's no. be honest. No. But none of that matters, Walker. Because you won Regicide. Because I beat Regicide. I'm going to move on to the next thing, Mark. Must you? And finally- Is it for- about my beating Regicide? No, it's not. Oh. And finally from me, I finally got to try Final Girl. This is another solo. This is designed by Evan Derrick and AJ Portfrio, published by Van Ryder Games. And yeah, so those things I just talked about. Uh, it has all of those things. It has uh, random events. It has deck milling. It has random dice rolling. Deck milling when you're trying to get your items. It has the wacky events. It has the random cards. It has all of those things. And it has all of those things in painful amounts where <laughs> your successes are only coming 33% of the time. There's lots of things I liked about Final Girl, but there were a lot more things I didn't like, like really rolling successes just to move around. You couldn't give us a free movement. You couldn't give us any of those things. The fact that you could even, you're only rolling two dice. And a lot of these games that are cooperative or, or solo, you're building a pool and it sort of like works out, you know, the randomness of the dice, the more dice you roll. You start at two and more likely you're going to go down to one because there's yet another you know, beat down system in this game. But I love the card system. I love the fact how you, uh, you would play some cards. You'd start off a hand with a bunch of things that cost zero and you sort of had a strategy that you would sort of cycle them. You'd keep three and use three. So you'd have this constant card flow. And I liked how that worked. There's things to like, but more to hate. <laughs> hate is a strong word. It is a strong word. I, but th- this being said, let's put it all in context. I am definitely not a solo person. I, I, I'd never seek out, but I just, this was getting a lot of buzz and uh, a copy was, you know, made available to me. So I thought, you know, I, I should give this a try. And, uh, I am more of a solo person. I'm not blessed with your natural charisma, nor your yawning need for the approval of other people. And I I agree with you. The, the dice system is overly punishing. I think if you're going to have the fundamental driver of all of your actions be dice results, you might want to start with a higher total than two, just so the probabilities even out a little bit. And also, I agree with you. There's this weird thing. I, I, I'll probably have more thoughts to say about it later. For some reason, and I'm very much in this category, people balk at the idea of movement being subjected to random results. People felt the very same way, for example, the same complaint is levied against war games like Combat Commander, for example, where it's like, surely, look, I could understand not being able to fire whenever I want to, but surely people can just move around whenever they want to. It's like, well, the moment you start abstracting away the ability of a single individual or a group of individuals or an army, so such that their actions need to be driven by a card and or the results of dice, it's not obviously stupid that their movement should be variable any more than their combat results should be variable. But nonetheless, as a player, it feels odd. And I agree with you there. That was one of the issues. And I commented as well when I talked about Final Girl, the deck milling even bothered me. You're either going to find a good weapon or you're not, broadly speaking. And if you keep searching and you just can't get a good weapon, well, the final confrontation means you just have to wail on the bad guy at the end. So... Good luck. You kill. Why not kill him before the final con? We never, we never even got to a final conflict, but... Why not just kill him before you get there? That's <laughs> what I'm thinking. Well, no, I, the, the overall tempo of Final Girl, I think, lends itself to, to the traditional kind of slasher movie thing where you start out, you're desperately scrabbling for some resources, you're helping some innocents escape, and then you try to arm up for some final confrontation. 
And then, as I commented as well, I find the end game a little bit tedious because if you're properly equipped, it's just attack after attack after attack after attack. And at that point, it's not so much uh, a thrilling dance with an unstoppable juggernaut. It feels like some sort of slog-like combat confrontation that, quite frankly, I wouldn't even be too much of a fan of in the context of a co-op combat game. Like, the way the final confrontation works, I don't think would even work in a game like Street Masters. And there it's 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 about a whole bunch of side-scrolling beat-em-up tropes as opposed to horror game tropes. Anyway, but that's a minor aside. Now, in the addition you had, did you have, like, the personal weapons for each final girl? Yes. And did you incorporate them at all? I was just wondering, that's what I did. I decided to, you get 12 items, and I just put it in those 12 items and shuffled up and it was somewhere. I tried it both ways. I tried it in the version where the personal item, because I like character asymmetry and that's one of the elements of personality, arguably one of the only elements of personality for the different final girls. I mean, they look different and they have a different track for rescuing innocents and they get different special abilities. But honestly, I, I felt that the, the, the primary visual appeal, especially since if you have the miniatures, which I did, they are armed with their signature weapon. So once I played it where their signature weapon was definitely somewhere in the item decks. And the next time I tried it, there was a chance of it being somewhere in the item decks. In both games, they ended up with their signature weapon. Oh, nice. Well, that's something. My game, I was lucky. Not only did I get it, but it was like right on the top. So I knew where it was <laughs> and I knew right. where, to, where to go get it. So sure. lucked out that way, still did terrible. If you'd like to see how terrible I did, it is on our YouTube channel, channel under live. And those are the games we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. First of all, Mark, I'd like to say this is the 200th episode. That's kind of exciting, right? And like other content creators, we reached out to uh, our common comrades in creatorship to comment on on what they thought of our 200th episode. So we're going to play those for you now. We only wanted comments from people that we we cared about what they had to say, and we thought that they had something meaningful to say. So Mark, uh, good job. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, that we got a number of comments about our 200 episodes I had to edit out all the uh, the ones that were not fit for broadcast, and uh, we've been left with, um, well, I mean, look, I'm surprised that what my mom said wasn't fit for broadcast. That was, that was. Um, that was I was kind of horrified, actually. It was. Uh, like, I heard I rumors, like, yeah. you, you said things, and I thought you were joking, and then the disdain in her voice was quite jarring. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So, on February the 8th, on Kickstarter, Iron Forest is finally going to be launched uh, and crowdfunding. Iron Forest is the redevelopment of Ice Cool, which was the dexterity game involving penguins. And I really like Ice Cool for no other reason than, among recent dexterity games, it is one of the best recent examples of being able to do trick shots without be devoting yourself wholesale to mastering it as a skill. There are weird curve shots and bank shots and things that you can pull off probably in the middle of your second game, possibly even your first if you're very talented. Not expertly, of course. There's still room for improvement, but lots of interesting things to be done. That's just due to the physicality of the pieces and the way the penguins are constructed. And it was a charming game about running around and getting penguins. But this, Walker, Iron Forest, is fundamentally the same technology, but leveraged in support of mechs. Mechs are just better than penguins. I'm going to say that. No slight on Yuri Yura Penguin. I'm just saying that Yuri Yura Mech might be more to my preferences in terms of overall theming. Yes, I never grow out of 12 years old. More on that later in our feature game. And also, it's going to have multi-level boards. I was going to say, wasn't this the one that had, like, holes where you could, like, drop down to another level? Like, and little yeah. tubes, like hamster running. I, I don't... Look, it's been in development for a long time. This was first announced years ago, so I don't know how the final product is going to emerge. But I am very curious to see what Brain Games is going to be doing with Iron Forest. And that's going to be up on Kickstarter on the 8th of February. Speaking of dexterity games, Mark, there's a game called Hand-to-Hand -Hand Wombat. Now, it was pitched to me in error, but just recently I went up and got the lowdown. It was, I thought it was close your eyes, be given a roll, and then open your eyes and everyone starts building and you sort of get in other people's way, like visually, but it's not. This is blindfold the whole time. Look at your role. Either you're trying to help build this thing, these things, or you're trying to stop them. So everyone has the blindfolds on. You reach around madly trying to build these pyramids and one person is being the traitor. I think it's going to be hilarious and I can't wait. I am a little bit dubious about any shared experience like this where everyone has to be blindfolded. Now, granted, this is the era of COVID. We don't play with strangers anymore, and we don't play games out in public shared spaces much anymore generally. There was a little bit of that in Vancouver, but not, that, that was pre-Omicron. Who knows where we're going to be in a few years? But I'm, as I say, I, I'm a little bit nervous about trespassing on people's personal space there. I'm also a little bit nervous about how it's just going to devolve into I felt them trying to do something dodgy and the defense is I just got confused yeah. and the I just got confused defense is wearing a little thin in a lot of social deduction context. I know but this is definitely going to be a one once a year type event you know I'm sure it's not going to be you know the top sure. of the shelf but I think it'll be good it'll be great for streaming if if not anything else I'm absolutely keen to give it a try 
uh, and the title is A+. And this is by the same people that did Exploding Kittens and Throw Throw Burrito. Yeah, that's another reason why I'm not exactly super enthusiastic. But Speaking about not being enthusiastic, <laughs> uh, John D. Clare, your favorite uh, designer, uh-huh. is designing a game. And believe it or not, it doesn't have translucent cards, at least not that I could see. From the little bit. At least not that you can see. Ha! <laughs> ha! <laughs> see what it is? Anyway. Well, if they do have translucent cards, it's not transparent from the listing. Yikes. Um, <laughs> it does have meeple rolling. Now, we played, I did play a game. Unfortunately, it was only in the digital implementation, so we didn't actually get to roll the meeples. Yeah, that sounds like a bit of a, of a ripoff, honestly. I mean, what, what's the point? I know. But this one also has meeple rolling. It's city, but this is called Rolling Heights. It is a meeple rolling city builder. And all the pictures look very pretty. And it's coming up on Kickstarter on February the 8th as well. Rio Grande Games used to publish nearly everything in the hobby market, them and Mayfair. But now they've gone to much less frequent releases. But nonetheless, a lot of their recent output has been very, very solid. The most recent example of this is probably Beyond the Sun, which was one of our favorite Euro games of the past few years. In April of 2022, Rio Grande Games is going to be releasing Space Station Phoenix by Gabriel J. Cohn. And the appeal there is kind of reminiscent of the things you've said about Steam Watchers. It's an engine destruction game where you start off with your economic engine as good as it's going to get. And over the course of the game, you gradually dismantle it, becoming less and less efficient as the game goes on. Now, I hope what this means is that it is more friendly to new players as opposed to less, because if it's the case that by the end of the game, you have the harshest trade-offs to be faced, at least then they know what they're doing. But of course, if it's the kind of game where your early decisions are more consequential just because you're doing more stuff, then that might backfire. But it's getting a lot of good buzz from people that I trust, and it is definitely something I will keep my eye open for. So that is Space Station Phoenix from Gabriel J. Cohn, published by Rio Grande Games in April of this year. Lastly from me, in May 2020, a game called Deep Rock Galactic came out. And this was a cooperative first-person shooter where you're playing a group of dwarves going out, mining, shooting bad guys, going on missions. I had not heard of it until recently. I watched a bunch of videos. It looks very interesting. There is going to be a board game now, Deep Rock Galactic, the board game. This will be on Kickstarter February the 10th, designed by Ole Steinus, the same designer of Champions of Midgard, which I enjoyed, you didn't, and Police Precinct, which I wanted to enjoy, but did not. So... The video game looks very interesting. The miniatures for this board game look very cool. The whole premise of of like a different, you know, you're not elves and and yeah, it's shooting dwarves. I know, but you're not <laughs> it's not the standard dungeon like you're going in, you're mining, you're creating noise, it's attracting these monsters, you're going on different kinds of missions. Okay. It just seems like it has a little bit more than the than the usual dungeon crawler. Every other game is about dwarves. Dwarves don't do it for me. Uh, I'm afraid that it Sorry, fantasy dwarves. I should stress. Yes. So Libertalia was published by one of our favorite designers in 2012, Paolo Mori, one of the best European designers working in the business today. And it's going to be reprinted slash redeveloped slash redesigned into a new edition called Libertalia Winds of Galecrest by Stonemeyer Games. Now, Libertalia was never one of my favorites. It's yeah. a simultaneous action selection game. I thought we were doing things that are interesting. I thought... 
I here's the thing. I have enough faith in Paolo Mori that I still want to see what he does with it. The gotcha. fundamental core of the asymmetry I thought was interesting. The idea was that there was a large variety of possible effects in the game, and every player would be dealing with the same hand of wild effects. So you get the same variety and the kind of asymmetry session to session, but you don't have to worry about getting a particularly unfortunate combination for your own setup when someone else might stumble into a combo. That structure I thought was very promising. Pirates don't do anything for me, and the net result didn't really do a whole heck of a lot for me. But look, Paolo Mari is a very, very clever designer, and he has probably learned a lot over the course of the past 10 years. Heck, he's innovated a lot in the course of the past 10 years. And so I'm interested in seeing what happens. And look, say what you want about Stonemire, it's going to be pretty. As I was about to say the same thing. At least the art looks very nice. So I am I am looking forward to Libertalia Winds of Galecrest, and we'll be giving it a try when it gets published later this year. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game. Our feature game is America's Movable Fighting Man, the deck building game. Oh, I'm sorry. G.I. Joe, the deck building game. Designed by T.C. Petty III at Renegade Game Studios. Published last year, which is to say 2021, which still sounds weird. 2021 still looks like the future to me, but it was last year. Get with it, Grandpa. T.C. Petty III has designed a number of designs, including Viva Jaffa the Coffee Game in 2012 and Xenon Profiteer in 2015. He's also been involved in some development and design work for, say, Hostage Negotiator add-on packs and a variety of expansions and redevelopments of Viva Jaffa. But this is the first design of his that I have tried. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in G.I. Joe the deck building game? And are you a real American hero? I am the greatest American hero. Oh. G.I. Joe was there. So in G.I. Joe, you're building your deck of Joes. You're going on these missions. You're you're drawing these vehicles because only a certain number of Joes can go in vehicles. These different missions will come up. They'll need different skill sets, Mark. And different Joes have different skill sets. You know, you can't send shipwreck on a motorcycle to go across a desert. It just doesn't work that way, Mark. He goes on a ship or a submarine. And then he gets wrecked. And then he gets rickety wrecked. All right, this is how G.I. Joe works. You're you're trying to get a nice array of different Joes that have different skills. You're maybe you're picking one up to just do a certain mission. You're trying to get all the way to Cobra Commander and beat the mission at the end. Overall, a fantastic experience. G.I. Joe check dump. <laughs> the goal of the is to say the name of the game as quickly as possible. Pre- presumably omitting as many consonants as need be. Walker, let me ask you a very pointed question, all right? And this is the same thing that my father said to all two of my girlfriends. We all know that we can do so much better here. So why are we wasting our time? I, I don't know, Mark. There's something about it. When 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 gaming people ask, like, sure. not very often they'll just say, Mike, what's this newest game you're going to throw in front of us now? When they actually come in and say, can we play that G.I. Joe deck building game again? I have to, and not only once, but several times, you have to take notice. You have to see what this game is about. You have to analyze a little deeper. What is it about this game that people are enjoying? Well, I'm glad that you're framing it in that way because I have my thoughts on the game. And I don't don't hate the G.I. Joe deck building game. It is definitely on the lower scale of I will play this if it's put in front of my face. And I'm kind of in, it's interesting that you mentioned Champions of Midgard earlier. It's kind of in the Champions of Midgard level of mediocrity, where its mediocrity makes me a little angry. 
So I'm going to sound like I'm more down on the game than I am. As I said, somebody puts in front of my face, I'll play it, probably with a minimum of complaint. Uh, But in the course of preparing for this episode, I actually spent a certain amount of time writing notes about my thoughts on the G.I. Joe deck building game as a design. And uh, the rest of the time, I listed a whole bunch of properties from roughly the same era that I think would be better to adapt into some kind of game, even uh, a a relatively mediocre deck building game. And also just writing down a whole bunch of uh, false acronyms or forced acronyms in the context of the G.I. Joe universe, because many of them are ridiculous. So I I did discover that the original tagline for the G.I. Joe action figure, before it was even called an action figure, because they invented the term action figure, because they didn't want to call them dolls, Walker, because boys aren't going to play with dolls. I am in favor of following the excellent example of Scott Nicholson, and I like calling miniatures dolls. And I think we should be willing to call action figures what they are. They are dolls. And it was originally America's Movable Fighting Man, which just amuses me on some fundamental level. Uh, we have COBRA, which is a forced acronym for Conversion by Blackmail, Revolution, and Anarchy. The organization run by Destro, who is definitely the coolest of the COBRA agents, is MARS, the Military Armaments Research Syndicate. And a subgroup of COBRA, this one is my favorite in terms of, of silliness, is VENOM, the Vicious Evil Network of Mayhem. Now yes. that is an acronym and a half. Parenthetically, uh, COBRA is also the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, which relates to porting healthcare benefits after you have left your employer in the United States of America. None of this has anything to do with the G.I. Joe deck building game. These are all things I would rather discuss than the G.I. Joe deck building game. Wow. Let's talk about things that the G.I. Joe deck building game does correctly. Oh, is that what we're talking about? Yes. Okay. Sock it to me. Rolling for successes. Oh, yeah. That's, so, actually, I hate that the most. Go on. Why? You get a whole bunch of dice. We just talked about how <laughs> only one or two dice don't do it. Sure. This allows you to, to draw this giant pool. And not only that, 50% of the time you're rolling successes. It's a 50% <laughs> success rate on these dice. And not only that, one in six of those 50% chances is a double success. Man, you are succeeding through the nose in this game. You, <laughs> your level of enthusiasm for something so incredibly banal. Here's the thing. If, well, I just got off, you know, playing Final Girl where there are no success. <laughs> it's all death. Yeah, success is a lie. Uh, yeah, so... Yes, half the time you're rolling successes. The expected result of a single die is four-sixths of a success. I don't see why the dice exist at all in the G.I. Joe deck building game. It, uh, it it just seems an additional level of arbitrariness. I'm usually the last player to play a game like, why are the dice here? They could have done away with it. They could have done away with the dice in this design. Uh, there was quite a few times that we gambled because there are what, – what happens in this game is that you are flipping over a mission. There's a mission that is presented to you and you eventually have to – uh, go on this mission and they allow you to see the mission that's coming after that. So you can sort of figure out what skills you're going to need coming up as well. And, and things are going to happen. It's either going to be at the end of everyone's turn or at the end of every round, something very bad is going to happen. Usually. Yes. So you're going to have to decide how quickly you want to deal with this particular mission. Cause the failure conditions are often pretty bad. Yes. Yeah. So, so you, sometimes you want to gamble at suboptimal dice rolling. So, I think there is a reason for the dice. I think you can either 
overkill mission by waiting to make sure you have enough or gambling and and rolling less dice and hoping to get what you want. So there's no interesting dice manipulation. There's hardly any rerolls to be had. Uh, there want, are no, everyone starts with one. And yes, are, a single card that allows them to reroll a single die. And there are lots of ways. I'm not saying that it should be purely deterministic. That's not my assertion. There's no dice upgrading. There's not really mitigation of the dice. There's no way to take it safe and be guaranteed a lower number of successes or gamble for higher number of successes. It's just this additional level of noise in the system that I could have done without. And you said that there were giant dice pools. In my experience, if you were getting to eight dice, that was usually pretty good. How, how giant did your dice pools get? 14 to 15. That's pretty impressive. Okay. But honestly, I think that at those levels, the dice would have bothered me less. But I was routinely not getting there. Now, granted, I did didn't play any four-player games. The most I ever played with was three, and that will influence things. And I didn't get the giant APC that costs a million Joe Bucks to purchase. All the Joes can come. Yeah, yeah. Every, there's room for everybody. Yeah. You can bring your kid yeah. sister. You can bring Lady J. Lady J's aquarium can come. We're going on vacay. Shipwrecks Polly yeah. can show up. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. There's room for everybody. It, but, uh, I mean, to be frank, I, I would have been happy if the dice were either a little more deterministic, or you could do a little bit more with it, or you can finagle it. On top of that, in terms of arbitrariness, since we're on this topic, Topic. What did you think of the way complications work? That was the one very fiddly part where I go on about what Cobra, there are a bunch of different types of Cobra cards, but yes, let's cover complications. I thought they were extremely fiddly compared to the rest of the game. Like, do I flip them over? Do they go over here? What happens when this happens? What happens when they, you know, definitely a fiddly part of the game. When a new mission comes up, it has a certain number of face down complications. And the first time the mission is attempted, which overwhelmingly will be the last time it's attempted because almost all of them, if you fail them, they just go away and you go to the next mission, which parenthetically I like. You'll always be progressing through. You're not going to be stagnating against a mission that you can't really succeed against. That's fine. But the complications can range all the way from this is a new threat you have to deal with on your turn, which is fine. Usually the the, the, the trade-offs of you know throwing yourself against the story mission or dealing with some of the other minor threats that can agglomerate, that part was okay, to... It's now, the mission is now much more difficult than you thought it was going to be, which given, again, my experience was there was not a whole lot of granularity in the amount of dice, so it can make a, a somewhat risky mission into a borderline impossible mission right away. Similarly, the ones that force you to re-roll a success, again, very small number of dice mitigation strategies, and this one just forces you to probably half the time throw away a success you already have. And the fact that you couldn't mitigate them, there were zero cards you could play to deal with complications... No, there was a uh, missile system. Oh, you're right. The, the 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 smart missile. Yes. I apologize. There are ways to mitigate it. You're quite right. I stand corrected. And but and that being said, a lot of the times in the first couple of games, we just completely forgot about them and had to backtrack every time. It's like I forgot okay, about them a couple times we, too. We, yeah. We roll the dice. It's like oh, we succeeded great, and then we look over. It's like oh wait, there's three cards we need yeah. to flip up. So back up. Now we have to deal with these complications first. And then I thought that some, in some cases they were interesting as well because some of them needed certain skills as well. And so there's a decision space there on who should take them and, you know, uh, you know, how you should deal with them. Okay. Because can we, can we board down on, on that for just a second? Sure. So you said that there's an interesting decision space in terms of who should go for what mission. All right. That was not my experience. And here's why. So a given mission will show up and the mission says we need, it, to, to, to throw, I complained about this when I talked about the game before. It's a lot of symbol matching, but they just call it keywords instead. So this mission needs vehicles or martial arts. 
in my experience, what you do is you just have a whole bunch of people looking at their hands and you say, okay, we should take care of this mission as soon as possible. What's the best value you can get to of either of those two totals? Everyone figures it out. This is not a particularly complicated or convoluted calculation process, but it is a strictly calculational process. And someone says, well, if I lead the mission, we can get to nine dice. Well, if I lead the mission, we can get to eight dice. Okay, well, you on your turn should go lead the mission and we'll load up the best vehicle with as many people as possible. That to me is not a decision space. That to me is mechanically going through and and just tallying up the best odds of success. True. That part true. I meant I meant handing out the complications, who should take them and who has the skills. But yes, I agree with ah, you. Yes. That was definitely what happened in our game as well. Who who has the best combination? Who should go on the mission? Because and that's another part of the game. Because if you are aiding Joe's on someone else's turn, then when it becomes your turn, you're gonna have less cards. So that is another thing to, you know, decide on how it's gonna happen. There are cards that will allow you to redraw. When uh, you're down below three and there's an amazing, uh, other amazing cards that you just pick Joe's back up into your hand after the mission, which is amazing. So you're basically conceding that with respect to the core advancing of the game and of the victory condition, that it is a more or less purely calculational exercise with a right answer. Exactly. Okay. Well, to me... And I got to say, that is the primary thing that I found disappointing about the G.I. Joe deck building game. I was much more bullish about the G.I. Joe deck building game after playing it for the first time. Because as I commented, I have some degree of recollection of how some of these characters are. I think it's worth noting that the gender and ethnic balance for the game is pretty bad. But for a 1980s cartoon, it was pretty good. Uh, I, I, I will go to the mat for that for, you know, a mainstream uh, shovel thing, especially when compared to other things like Transformers or a lot of other things that I have here. I, I'm not worried about the ethnic breakdown of the Transformers characters, despite the fact that some of them were ethnic caricatures. It's more the gender balance. There was like one Transformer who was obviously a girl. They made her pink and gave her lipstick. So, you know, stuff was going on there. Um, So, you know, the, the, the cast is there. I really liked the element of the vehicles. It was cool. You got the notion of all these people piling into a silly little military vehicle and going off on a mission. And there's bonuses too. I thought that yeah. I liked that part because certain missions really wanted you to use boats or tanks or, or planes. And if you use those vehicles, then you got a bonus. But again, there's a right answer. And so I didn't feel like I was really making any decisions. I felt like I was going through the motions of just getting to the biggest possible fistful of dice to toss at this mission. And so there weren't really trade-offs. There weren't really gambits. There weren't really, ca- there weren't really short-term versus long-term trade-offs. I, I just, I was going through the motions. And the first time I played the game, I was, I was perfectly happy to do that. But every subsequent play, I'm just like, why am I doing this? Well, I'm not saying this is the greatest game of all time. But that I, is exactly I, what you said, I Walker. Think... I, have, I have it right down. I have it right down in the time code, 46 minutes and 17 seconds. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm a duty head, and this is the greatest game ever made. Uh, I, verbatim. Word verbatim, well, I'd have to hear it. But anyway, I think there's a lot going on in this game, and I just think they did a great job at, at tying it all together. So like I said, we've already talked about the complication cards. These are cards that you add on to the mission that are face down. So they're sort of like surprises. On top of that, there's the officers, which are all your normal, you know, Cobra leaders. Like you said, Destro, Cobra Commander. Uh, Dr. Mindbender. D- yeah. All, they he all- always bothered me that he was supposed to be this, this scientist character. 
and all he's wearing above the waist is weird <laughs> suspenders. Like he's a scientist. Shouldn't he wear he, a shirt of some kind? But he's ripped. I, oh, oh yeah, they're all ripped. I mean, sure. <laughs> I guess, look, if you're a doctor and you're built like that, I guess you'd want to show off your pecs as well. Okay, fine. Point taken. And they all had very interesting uh, abilities, like Dest- uh, Destro, you couldn't use the double success. And there was another guy where you had to get exactly number yeah, of Yeah, Zartan, that was a pain. That guy is, is rude. <laughs> Tranquilizer dart that guy every time. Um, I sometimes felt that it was kind of getting to the point of too many global modifiers. Just a touch, right? At the point where you're juggling a couple of different Cobra officers that are just standard-sized cards and everyone at the table needs to take into account all of them. So an individual player might have to worry about the global modifiers of a couple Cobra officers the story mission and a couple of unique missions to themselves there. I felt again, like it wasn't super tedious, but given the parsimony of decisions of consequence to be made, I felt it was pushing things a little too far. Yeah, I agree. Deal with them quicker. And then you don't have to deal with so many. <laughs> Get good. Get good. L2P. L2P Got it. L2P done. I'll, I'll write that down. All right. Then there were the, the battalions. What the battalions did is they covered up your purchase spaces, much like in uh, Siege of Rundar, where, you know, you lost your spaces, less spaces, bad. Not only that, they also gave you side missions to do, because some of the time you just didn't have anything to do, and these side missions were a nice way to either lower the threat, more on that in a minute, because I thought that was interesting as well, or do other things. Then there was the... Cobra Troopers that went in your deck. They're like sort of like the bog down your deck with useless card things. I thought that was kind of neat as well. Now for the threat track. Threat track is what's going to end the game once it gets to the end. And you sort of had to keep it in balance. You had cards that you started with that if you succeeded in a side mission, if you had this card in your hand, that you got to lower the threat. Every every round, the threat was going to go up. Some cards make it, made it go up even faster. Succeeding in missions brought it back down. Generally speaking, succeeding in a story mission brought it down. Failing the story mission brought it up. And there was three different colors, and some of the cards corresponded to those colors, which I thought was very interesting as well. Roll more dice if you're in red. Bad other things will happen if you're in green. Stuff like that. Thought it was a nice touch. Let's talk about other stuff in your hand. Uh, I liked how it made it very easy to cull your cards. The majority of your deck were these standard troopers, and... And they just every, don't come home. And every time, <laughs> every time you went on a mission with them, if you succeeded, it would allow you to remove them from your Poor deck. Poor Joe. <laughs> Decision space there as well. Because if you sent them home, you couldn't use them for buying. Because buying happened at the end. Sending them home happened before that. So you had to sort of decide, am I going to use them for purchasing power? Or am I going to send them home and not get the cards I want this turn? I guess. I was hoping that it was going to play out a little bit more like Core Worlds. In Core Worlds, every time you conquer a world, you can garrison a single unit. But in the case of Core Worlds, you need to worry about the balance of your units because a lot of your cards, a lot of them that you can't get rid of all at once, worry about the composition of how much, how many ground forces do you have? How many air forces do you have? What keywords you're able to trigger? And I, at, at the end of the day, I, I felt... Like, it was usually pretty trivial. Like, I'm usually sending one or two good Joes, who I can't trash and wouldn't trash even if I could, and then a whole bunch of gormless guys who probably don't have pensions, and so I can send them off into the wild blue yonder. And uh, I was more than happy to send them away. I guess for some of the very, very early missions, there might be a trade-off in terms of purchasing power, but, I mean, honestly, most of the time I just culled them with, with vicious finality. Nasty. And then let's talk about replayability. 
So there are an array of different heroes you can start with. Not only that, during the game, you can power them up to, like, you can spend six resources to make them the super leader. And they get their, you know, nice golden side. There are uh, different two different main missions that you can go on. And within those main missions, there's three chapters. And there's multiple cards for all those chapters. So it's going to be changed up a lot. And then there's the, you know, of course, a giant deck of cards. It, it comes out uh, Ascension style, you know, where, you know, you line up the cards, you buy from the pool, and they keep refilling. So that's going to change up every time. And then the different complication cards. I thought the system they used to to bring the complication cards in, I thought was unique because you didn't just sort of bring in the level two complication cards. It's like you took the level one, level one complications and you shuffled them into the level twos. I thought that was very interesting. You don't see many games that do that. They just say, you know, throw out the ones, bring in the twos. I just thought it was a very interesting way you could just sort of, there was things that were happening there, decisions that were being made where we know now that there are complication two cards there do we want to do these certain things that are going to give us more cards or not i remember there being you know decisions being made there i would have liked to have played that game i mean honestly yes there's a fair amount of variety and there's a lot of art that has been made for the gi joe deck building game and there are the little blurbs about what characters are doing what and what nefarious schemes dr mindbender is up to now etc etc i mean at the end of the day it doesn't change what i consider to be the core gameplay loop and I, I think fundamentally this is where we disagree on the G.I. Joe deck building game. The core gameplay loop is for the story mission, again, primarily, there are a certain set of skills, keywords, symbols, whatever, and you look around the table and you figure out who can throw the most number of dice at that. They're the person you send on the mission. You hope the dice come out great. You hope you hope that the random complications that get revealed don't completely euchre you. That's what's called a callback Ooh, in the industry. A callback nice. to last week's discussion of trick-taking games. And that's about it. I mean, yeah, the the picture of the Joe on the card could be different, whether it's martial arts four or tracking four. But at the end of the day, there's- Snake eyes, Mark. Okay, snake eyes. Okay. Don't mess with snake eyes. He's got snake eyes. Does he, though? I don't understand why he was called snake eyes. <laughs> he was a guy who didn't speak, right? Yes. Yes, okay. Why didn't he speak? I don't know. Okay. There's he- a whole movie. You should watch it. Oh, you mean the live action one? Yes. No, I'm not watching that. <laughs> I don't- Neither by. And then there's expert mode, Mark. Expert mode. Would you become an expert? I did not try the expert mode. Did you try the expert no, mode? No, that's coming up, I'm sure. I'm not, that, that being said, I'm not sure if we're gonna I'm gonna come I'm not earning to go back to G.I. Joe. Really? Let's 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 put this stunning all, reveal. Let's, let's let's bring this all back around okay. and right. put it back into context. Here. Okay. What's the context? Context is when you saw the title G.I. Joe deck building game. Yes. Did your eyes roll and did you think, oh my God, this is going to be fundamentally terrible? Yes. And were you mildly surprised that there was a little bit of a game there? Absolutely. This is what I'm talking about. (laughs) No, fair enough. I mean, this is benefiting from, to co-opt a political phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations. And as I look, as I say, I'll play it if somebody wants to. And the first time I played it, I was pleasantly surprised at how evocative it was at being a toy commercial, because you get to see all the different little figures that maybe you remember or don't. I grew up poor. I didn't have G.I. Joe's. And all the little vehicles, and you get to imagine piling up all the little figures into the vehicle and trundling them along your couch cushion or whatever. And all of that's fine. But at the end of the day, you're just symbol matching, trying to get the best value, chucking dice and hoping they come out properly. 
And uh, even then, even in the context of that, there are properties that I would I would rather see executed even by a reasonably functional, albeit uninspired deck building. Would you like to hear? I was going to say hit 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 it up. I know you're just you're you're okay. I'll start, I'll start with the ones that are probably better known and more obvious, and then we'll go slightly more obscure as things go on. Darkwing Duck, Samurai Jack, and the and or the Powerpuff Girls. All right, uh, Tailspin, Ducktales. These are all from roughly the era, right? Now into the slightly more obscure mask. Mask would have been great because yes. the vehicles could have transformed. You True. could have rotated the card and dealt with different things and have little trade-offs and maybe played around with that. Centurions. I don't know if you remember Centurions. Thundercats. Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Dino Riders. Bucky O'Hare. I would, I'd I'd be much happier with any of these, to be frank. I, I would have included the Transformers, but Transformers has its own deck building game from Renegade Games that I have not yet tried. I'm sure it will be more successful in leveraging my preference for the characters, and it may well be even less successful as a game, but such is the way of things. On that note, let's talk about the, the difference in rule books, because that's remind me I had that in here. Because Thank you. Because the G.I. Yes. Joe rule book is terrible. It's real bad. Now, did you notice that in, in your plays that it didn't actually... Because in most deck building games, there are standard piles of cards that are available for the whole game. I can't for the life of me remember what this one is service called. Service rifle. Service rifle. There's a service rifle deck. You can buy them whenever they want. You want. They cost two resources. Yeah, Joe Bucks. Do they? Do they? Do they mention it in the rule book? No. Well, passing later on, you know, page fifty-two, they make some reference that it might exist. They're also not particularly clear about how the officers work. They're not particularly clear about a lot of elements of setup and gameplay for a game that's relatively simple. The rule book is pretty bad. It's true, and that wouldn't be so bad is if they didn't say after telling you how to set up, they just say now grab the general deck. Right now, because they didn't talk about the service rifles. That would imply that the service rifles rifles are part of the general deck. Indeed, because, because they look exactly like those. They other look cards. exactly like them, and they don't give you like a card count number. They don't say the fifty-two cards in the general deck, yep. or the and so it made the first play a little painful. But other than that, now compare that to the Transformers rulebook, which is nothing but pages and pages of text with hardly any examples, which is also equally painful, but at least a little bit more clear in some cases. Ah, uh, your old nemesis. Text. Text. Yeah, but... Which, which, no, <laughs> I'm just joking. I know, I know you're joking, but once again, in context, we're talking about a Transformers game. Who's going to buy it? And and these people open up this rule book and try to learn a game, like maybe a board game that, that they have never even played played before. Well, it's it's part of the double-edged sword, right? And, and I'm very sympathetic to this challenge. Say you're Renegade Games, right? And you've got the license for G.I. Joe or Transformers either way. There are a number of different ways you can go. And I, I think you're absolutely right that they didn't go what I will call the Cryptozoic route. Cryptozoic pumped out, many of them designed by Matt Hyra, many, many, many licensed deck-building games that were more or less the same, aggressively mediocre, but functional. And as to how accessible they will be to non-gamers, I don't know. But there was very little attempt to differentiate them from each other or from other deck builders on the market. The G.I. Joe deck building game, and from what I know by extension, the Transformers deck building game, are attempting to at least do something different. Not radically different, right? We're still talking deck builders. It's still relatively similar things. But to try to make things a little bit different. Now, at that point, you've got a bit of a problem. Because you either double down on that, or continue that design theory and try to design something interesting, 
or you try to make it as accessible as possible for a mass market. I don't know that you can necessarily do both. And I give them credit for choosing the former, which is probably less commercially viable for what it's worth. And uh, I don't know that you can have it both ways. It's true. I would love to have that mask deck building game. At first, I thought you meant like Jim Carrey's mask. No. Mask. Then I realized you meant the awesome cartoon where they wore masks. Now, I'm, yes. And the weird thing is, it wasn't even really about the masks. It was all about the vehicles. Yes. I, like, I, I keep forgetting why it was called mask. <laughs> because the masks were not particularly relevant. Do you remember Jason and the Argonauts? It was like these guys that were in crazy vehicles that fought plants. And it was very interesting. You're not talking about that stop motion thing from a million years ago. No, no. It okay. was, definitely was not stop motion. Because we don't have the same kind of cultural background. No. There, there are not a whole lot of cultural uh, touchstones that we have in common. I keep meaning to look it up because I I remember it quite distinctly. It was it was much like uh, G Force, which was it was a it was an anime that was brought over and I'm sure hacked to pieces ah. and put out for North American consumption, but like Robotech or Voltron. Exactly. Or, yeah. At least there are a lot of Robotech games that I can just pretend are Macross games. On on the note of stop uh, motion, there was a movie. I was going to say it's the best movie of 2021, but when I looked up, it it actually came out in 2022. I didn't realize that. It's on Netflix called The House. It will blow your mind. Well, on that note about the G.I. Joe deck building game, thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can check out our website, sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we will get back to you on if we can. Thank you so, so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.